Welcome to Subject Matter, where we help leaders navigate the tricky waters of building a company. We are shining a light on the subtleties that unlock empathetic communication, letting you build powerful relationships. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and together we empower B2B leaders with messages that connect with their customers and employees' heads and hearts. And now, let's get into today's story. It's all too easy to fall into the trap of building a prison of your own making, created by the deep-rooted convictions that you hold. Overconfidence and seeking constant validation is a slippery slope to being blinded by pride and certainty. There's no space for discovery, curiosity, or the humility that allows us to rethink our assumptions. This is the dangerous path business leaders face. By understanding how our convictions can lock us into this thinking, though, we can accelerate our ability to rethink and be open to our teams and avoid the doom that happened for one of the most successful mobile companies at the start of the 20th century. And as we'll see, if you're able to be open, curious and humble, then that can also lead to the result of pioneering a whole new industry. On today's episode, we'll explore the phrase popularized by thinkers such as Shane Snow and Adam Grant of having intellectual humility, knowing what we don't know. And this will be sure to improve your leadership capabilities by being aware of your shortcomings and open the doors to start questioning your current understanding and get curious about what you might be missing while making critical decisions for the future of your company. It might be initially uncomfortable, but intellectual humility is vital for any founder and CEO hoping to build a successful company. Today, we're going to compare the stories of two different founders of global leading mobile phone companies, beginning with a science prodigy who created a solar panel for a science fair before even becoming a teenager and being awarded for reading every science book in the public library. Mike Lazaridis dreamed up the idea of the BlackBerry as a wireless communication device for sending and receiving emails. As of 2009, BlackBerry accounted for nearly half, yes, that's right, half of the US smartphone market. They had loyal customers from Bill Gates to President Obama and Oprah Winfrey even gushing that I cannot live without this. Lazaridis's company did form the inception of the smartphone revolution, but his trouble with rethinking and his inability to have intellectual humility would suck the oxygen out of his invention and eventually extinguish it altogether. Now, you might know where this is going with Apple, another company that you may well have heard of, but actually BlackBerry's competitor Steve Jobs thought much the same as Lazaridis eventually with a closed mind. Steve Jobs was a notoriously stubborn individual with strong convictions about what made Apple's products great. He was known for sticking to his guns, which typically paid dividends even when critics mocked the company's decisions. In 2004, a small group of engineers, marketers, and designers pitched Jobs on turning their hit product into a phone. And you know how Jobs responded? Why the f- would we want to do that? 
The iPod was thriving. It seemed irrational to think of cannibalizing their star product. Jobs absolutely hated cell phone companies and smashed them often due to his frustrations, swearing that he would never create a phone himself. He never had this master plan for the iPhone even three years before its launch. So what was the key difference here? One leader was willing to experiment while the other leader failed to adapt to market needs. And you can guess which leader is which. When Jobs returned to Apple in 1997, one of the first things he did was to kill the Newton, a tablet-like device that used the stylus. The Newton was a failed experiment of adding the stylus to the phone, when in reality, consumers had five styluses already, their fingers. This time around, though, in 2004, Jobs begrudgingly agreed to his team's suggestion after six months of conversations, supporting the initiative to run some experiments around this new phone. The team persuaded him to open up his mind and face the facts that there were some things that he simply didn't know. The two different experiments that they ran were calling into question the capabilities of the iPod and turning the Mac into a miniature tablet that doubled as a phone. And four years later, after merging the two into the iPhone, this would account for half of Apple's revenue. Now, as this cycle is going on at Apple HQ, this wasn't even on the radar of Mike Lazaridis, even though he thought he knew exactly what was going on. He would take apart other smartphones on the market and study them, and nothing ever impressed him until the summer of 2007 when he dissected the first iPhone and remarked, they've put a Mac in this thing. Sales of the iPhone started to skyrocket, and Lazaridis held his ground, believing that loyal customers would stand by his side with the historical features of the keyboard and email application. But these, unfortunately, as we know now, were sensations of the past, and appetites were evolving. As early as 1997, BlackBerry engineers wanted to experiment with an internet browser, but Lazaridis was a naysayer. He stuck to his guns within the bounds of his comfort zone, and that meant focusing solely on email without testing alternative hypotheses. And the other experiments that were to be run in 2010 much later were having encrypted text message sent across non-BlackBerry phones, but Lazaridis believed again this would render the product obsolete by agreeing to exchange messages outside of the BlackBerry ecosystem. And instead, it was a little company called WhatsApp that would seize this opportunity for upwards of $19 billion when it was acquired by Facebook. Lazaridis was just too attached to his little baby of an invention to change it. Even though Lazaridis started as a science prodigy, he was negligent about what it took to become a scientist later in his company's life cycle. He didn't experiment, and by 2014, BlackBerry's market share had plummeted from having over half of the US smartphone market to less than 1%. And this nosedive was caused by the CEO's lack of open-mindedness, whereas following in the footsteps of innovation from a company like Apple would have led to a much brighter horizon. Let's think for a second about how these two very similar leaders on the surface of two similar companies behaved completely differently. The difference is that one focused on experiments even though it made them uncomfortable, whereas the other stuck to what they knew. So that difference was the degree to which the leader was willing to leave their comfort zone. 
A fundamental theme that we see on subject matter time and again with the leaders we analyze are the ones that succeed are the ones who are willing to leave their comfort zone, while the ones who don't and stay clammed up within it stagnate their growth in this pattern of self-sabotage. If you want to understand this better, you can listen to some of our earlier leader breakdowns from this season. Episode 7, where we talk about Matthew Paris, how he explains that trauma leads to genius. Episode 10, where we break down how Nathan Barry created momentum for ConvertKit, his startup by leaving his comfort zone. And episode 18, where Melody Hobson talks about how she left her comfort zone to become co-CEO of Aerial Investments. But let's come back to BlackBerry for a second, because the truth is, poor Mike Lazaridis was too set in his ways to believe that his user base would want to type on a touchscreen, or that they'd even feel the need to have a portable computer in their pocket, as Steve Jobs had created for Apple. Both leaders were hesitant to leave their comfort zones, but the one who did is the one with a lasting legacy, while the other science prodigy's legacy died along with his company. Yes, it's true that Lazaridis set wildfire to the demand for smartphone technology, but due to his convictions of knowing what he thought was best for the future without actually putting them on trial, he doomed BlackBerry from the beginning. He wasn't willing to budge on any part of his vision, and he underestimated the needs of his customers while overestimating his ability to accurately predict the future. Honestly, it's easy for me to make these claims in hindsight, with the gift of hindsight. But if I was Mike Lazaridis, I can imagine that I might feel that I was doing the right thing with full conviction. And honestly, at the time, who's to say which way it would have went? And so today, when nobody is able to say with complete certainty where their industry is going to be going, you might be executing on what you think is the best plan and heading for disaster. What are some of the ways that we can catch this? Now, I don't need to know your industry to be able to give this advice. The real trait that we can zone in on here is what we said at the start, intellectual humility. This is a form of leaving your comfort zone because you have to acknowledge what you don't know. This is implicitly uncomfortable. It's much more comfortable to pretend like we have it all figured out like Mike Lazaridis did. But having intellectual humility is a key trait for empathetic leaders, along with being curious and open. So how can we practice this? How can we take root in what we don't know and see this as a sign of strength? Because these are areas to improve and to learn. Well, a technique we can use is to make a long list or even just a short list, of the top areas where you're ignorant. So I did this exercise in preparing for this episode, and I found the areas I'm ignorant are macroeconomics, game theory, the fundamental sciences, physics, engineering, sound design, and many, many more. When you have this list, it starts to pique your curiosity and lead to new discoveries. I can say, well, maybe I don't know that much about sound design, but I'm going to talk to Richard or Joao, our podcast editors, and learn more from them. And so this list ensures our humility. It's a living artifact that tells us how much we still have to learn. Now, the habit that we want to build off of this is to constantly question rather than sitting with the first comfortable assumption that we make. So 
now that we have this list, we can say, for me, for example, when someone gives me a science question, I can say, well, actually, I don't know that much about physics or evolutionary biology right now, but it's something that I'd like to learn in the future. So I'm going to defer to your judgment. Or why don't you tell me more about your perspective as you're the subject matter expert here? What we're doing here is what Adam Grant calls avoiding fat cat syndrome, which is where people rest on their laurels instead of pressure testing their beliefs. And due to the increasing change of pace, everyone needs to question their beliefs more readily than ever before. Having second thoughts is healthy as a business leader because it allows you to critically think about the possibilities that lie in the future. By understanding our convictions, we can leave our emotions at the door, trust ourselves less, and think more like a scientist fueled by experimentation. Let's not stay prisoners of our own making, decelerating our thinking with comfortable assumptions, but instead leap outside of our comfort zone. This ability to overcome our fear of leaving the comfort zone is a skill set and a mindset that we have the tools to equip ourselves with to dust ourselves off and step outside of what we already know. This is practicing intellectual humility. And if you need a reminder of what can happen when you leave your comfort zone, it turns out that all those years later, having computers in our pockets isn't as absurd as what Steve Jobs might have originally thought. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.